Welcome to Blackbird episode number 27. My name is James, and today I am thrilled to bring to you an interview with L.B. Muniz. L.B. is one of my very favorite people to talk to. I've been on his show before, uh, and I'll make sure to link to that episode in the show notes. His show, The Ben Awake Podcast for Better Sense Making, explores sort of the antidote to wokeness. L.B. and I don't necessarily see eye to eye on everything, which is probably a good thing. I don't even see eye to eye with myself on everything uh, from time to time. So we have really good conversations because we're both very open-minded. We're both kind of on the skeptical side and like to ask questions of the various worldviews and even our own worldviews that we come across. So I think you're going to really enjoy this interview. Before we get into the interview, let me remind you about BU Enterprises. My good friend Juliet is ready and waiting to welcome you back into your body through online yoga classes, Pilates, posture exercises, and just teaching you how to be aware of what's going on physiologically and emotionally in your body, she can help you on your way to physical and mental health. Check out BU Enterprises at buenterprises.com and let them know that I sent you. And with that, here is my interview with L.B. Munez. L.B. Munez, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Looking forward to continuing our conversation. Yeah, man. Our interview um, on my own feed has gotten pretty good listenership, which is kind of, you know, I mean, it was a it was a repost from your from your uh, feed. So that was pretty interesting that it got like it got more listens than I would say some of my bigger name guests. So uh, that makes me happy. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like uh, it sounds like people like to like to hear from us. So that's cool. Um, for those of you for those of the audience who like don't know you, why don't you kind of introduce yourself? Yeah, so um, you know, I'm LB Muniz. I walk the path of the philosopher. Um, I uh, started writing about seven or eight months ago. Been in this liberty space for a long time, and um, I try to teach skepticism uh, as like an academic discipline, and just really try to interact with the world as it is, and try to give people workable advice in a newsletter that I release five days a week. So it's it's related to liberty, but you know, one thing interesting that's coming that happens is like. I keep running into people be like, oh, another libertarian podcast. And I have some ideas on that that we should get into. But um, I, I don't really consider my show a libertarian podcast. I consider my show, you know, somebody who has libertarian politics maybe, but it's, it's a show of exploration and it's a show of, and it's a show of what I think philosophy should be, which is kind of practical advice with some heady, uh, some heady overtones. So you know, if you're interested, you can go to binawake.com and subscribe with your email address. Um, and you, you know, that's the best way to kind of interact with what I'm putting out there into the world. Yeah. Your, your pitch for just subscribe with your email address. I'm going to have to copy that because, uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm getting a lot more subscribes with your clip, with the click of your button than, uh, than with your email address on Substack. And I would like to, I would like to be kind of driving my traffic that way, especially mm-hmm. as we talked about the last time we talked, uh, with more and more written content coming out, you know, just subscribing to the podcast is probably not good enough for me. Um, So how did you get into this? Where'd you come from? Um, Like intellectually speaking. Intellectually and and also like just kind of your background. Yeah. So, I mean, I was raised, I moved around a lot growing up. 
Um, you know, so I was born in Washington, D.C. I know. Ooh, scary. Um, I was born in Washington, D.C. I lived in Maryland, New Jersey, Maryland, Wisconsin before I was in Illinois before I was seven years old. Basically been in the Western suburbs for my whole life. And my intellectual tradition, I really, it, it's twofold, right? It's, it's both sides of my family. There's the Cuban side and then the Irish side. Um, the Cuban side, obviously, as it has the super, has this very anti-communist, right? My grandparents literally escaped Fidel's regime. My grandfather would have died in the Cuban military. I have members of my, fam- of my extended family who have been killed by the Cuban government. So really saying F you to communists has been a huge part of my intellectual tradition. And then on the other side, you know, more of a traditional American kind of constitutional upbringing, um, you know, big fans of Reagan. But then, you know, my grandmother on that side of the family was a big, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And I learned a recent story, kind of a funny story about the Chicago machine of how my like great grandfather on my dad, on my, uh, on my Irish side of the family, he was like living with an uncle who was a political boss, but they voted Republican and he was a Democratic political boss. And they said, hey, listen, we heard that you uh, we heard that you voted for such and such a candidate. You can't do that and continue to live here. Um, and so this is literally family members saying like, hey, you have to be a good person now and vote for the Democrats. So I've always been interested in philosophy. Uh, you know, I probably take more of my cues from, you know, Plato, Socrates, Nietzsche, Aristotle than I do some of the, you know, great libertarian economists. But um, I don't know. And I just kind of started writing and, and doing a show because I feel like, because <laughs> frankly, I look at a lot of people out there and I'm like, I think I can do as good of a job, if not a little bit better. So, and I'll let the, uh, I'll let the audience decide to, to the extent that that happens. Yeah, well, I, I tend to binge your episodes rather than, rather than listen to them as they come out because they're, they're kind of chock full. So I want to make sure I can like give them my attention that they deserve rather than doing them while I'm, while I'm doing other stuff, uh, like driving. Um, you describe yourself as a skeptic, right? Mm-hmm. What does that yep. mean? So I've, I've been working on different, uh, I've been working on different definitions for this in a practical sense. So for a long time, you know, in, in a, if you go through a philosophy class and you, sc- and you study skepticism, you're going to learn of like the word ataraxia, or you're going to learn about the idea of um, the study of doubt or the withholding of assent, which, is, which are very lofty terms. I'm putting that uh, recently, it might have even been on our interview that I first put it out there, but inquiry before dogma. That really sums up kind of what I'm trying to do. In particular, I was, there's a book on my shelf that deals with the Hellenistic age of ancient Greece. And what you basically see is the the rising of the third academy. And the third academy was kind of where you see this discipline of academic skepticism come into play. So I don't mean skepticism in this you know, the world is, uh, is a phantasm, although I've kind of been playing with that idea recently. It's the recognition that I might be wrong about anything that I have. And it's about building the best case for anything that I'm going to agree to. Um, so, you know, and there's also the larger meta story, if you will, is I think there's at least two ways to do everything. And a lot of times there might be three or four. And so if we look at skepticism, there's skepticism in like a biological sense, if you will. So there's skepticism and like, oh, I'm just going to disagree with what people are saying because I'm, you know, I'm curious about this. I'm questioning this. And then there's a difference between actually turning that into a school of thought. And I'm a big believer in conceptualizing things in terms of like a school of thought. So basically, to make it simple is, you know, in the Hellenistic age, you had the Stoics and the Epicureans. The Stoics were a lot about divine providence. 
Um, the idea that you know you have no control over your life, but you have control over your judgment. You don't even have under like an Epictetus or other Stoics, you wouldn't even have control over your own body in a sense, but you have control over your mind and judgment of things. And the Epicureans were this very materialist, you know, Epicurus was about the maximization of pleasure because this is all there is. And so like, you know, we should just try and be as happy and, uh, you know, and do whatever you want, do what makes you happy, do what brings you pleasure. And then you had, um, I think it would be Pyrrho would be the guy, um, Pyrrhonian skepticism. I could be wrong on this. But basically, you know, you had this third academy that arose. And, you know, based so if you think about it, Plato had the first, Aristotle had the second, this would be the third. And the third academy was kind of about debating both of these people and kind of saying, well, look, you're both kind of saying the same thing. And you're both saying completely different things. And yet you can both coexist. You can both work within the world. And I think there's a much to the chagrin of anybody who is a more, who would find themselves in one of those schools of thought or one of the schools of thought we deal with today, you can find success. Right. You know, people, you know, if we're going to put this into the modern parlance, if you want to go like progressive versus uh, libertarian or socialist versus libertarian, there are plenty of socialists who find success. And I don't think, or, you know, religious people would think that atheists can't find success or can't find happiness as, as such. And skepticism, I think, is there's the practical thing of like, okay, you learn how to think better. You know, like there is, I've kind of realized that I've, I've trained my brain at this point to just doubt everything that I immediately come across. And I have to go through like five or six arguments before I can actually put something out. So there's like that practical aspect of it. But then there's the larger implications where I do think that skepticism is what drives society forward in a sense, because it takes after you reach a certain level, we, you know, we've discussed integral theory. So I think your audience would be kind of familiar with that. But once you reach a certain level, a certain state of, of an idea, there, there comes a point where their skepticism is almost required, I would say. And it's that skepticism that kind of propels, you might, you, might, you might say, propels humanity forward if you want to put, you know, a narrative on the history of humanity like that. So a lot of that sounds like it takes a lot of time. I mean, are there any heuristics or uh, just like shortcuts that you take when it comes to, like, I hear something and I question it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, this is where, um, so I think I definitely incorporate both that natural inclination to question everything which I think a lot of us in this podcasting space probably have. So I kind of always, you know, my, my parents, I'm sure would say that I was always like a contrarian or I always questioned mm -hmm. things or asked too many, you know, maybe asked too many questions at times. And I think as a result of that, you do develop necessary heuristics. So if we look to previous schools, you have like Sextus Empiricus. This is all again in the Hellenistic age. Um, but Sextus Empiricus, one of, Empiricus rather, one of his, you know, rules, because if, you know, we can't know everything for, we can't know anything for certain, if there is no such thing as an absolute truth, if there is no such thing as the world, reality, whatever we might want to say, okay, well, what, what can you do with that? And one thing that he talked about was um, reliance on custom. Now, I don't necessarily share that, but I'm also writing, you know, like a thousand years after he was, mm -hmm. let's say, um, maybe longer. But I think in a heuristic sense, this is why I look at schools of thought. And I think as there's, um, there, I look at it this way. There are people who want to take the journey and then there are people who just want the answers. And in like a religious sense, that's what religion does is religion kind of gives you the answers already prepackaged. Here you go. There's no wavering. This is what we're doing. Whereas philosophy is the counter melody where we're kind of questioning, kind of following and seeing what works in the world as such, and then questioning what works in the world. So I think the, the real answer to this is you find a school of thought that works for you and you make sure that it holds up to your perception and to kind of how you 
how you see things. Because frankly, it is an arduous task. And it's something that as I've progressed in my career, this is really interesting of where I've kind of developed more of those heuristics. Once, I'm, once I was out of, out of that academic world and in a more in a very practical world, like I went from academia to, to manufacturing, right? So there really is no room. There is no room to question things, right? There is a way that things can get done. And there is a way that steel is made in a certain, you know, in a certain way. And these are the settings and this is the answer. And I think that helped me. And then just to, to close that off too, I think there's a, um, there's a natural maybe American pragmatism to it as well, because and I studied like William James, and I um, I wrote a paper once about how you know what's better for what what's better Nietzsche who's better Nietzsche or William James, and I kind of argued in the paper that Nietzsche is probably has the best answers, but not everybody can really deal with the answers that Nietzsche has for people. So William James, who says like you know the truth is whatever works, this larger American pragmatic school of thought, I think that's. Uh, I don't know. I think that's. I think that's. That's kind of another answer. Is okay. This seems to work. So let me roll with this for a while while maintaining the idea that I could be wrong about a set of ideas that I have. Uh, dig into that a little bit. I'm. I have a passing familiarity with Nietzsche because I took a course at Thad Russell's Renegade University, and I have heard of William James before, but I don't know anything about him. Can you sure. kind of compare and contrast them a little bit? Yeah. Um, well, so I mean, they wrote it. I think. William James would come afterwards. And William James was a psychologist, I believe, first. And this was, and so I might have to go a couple steps higher than the specifics, but basically American pragmatism was the school of thought. And it's separate from, you know, this is a this is in philosophy, I like to say that we use words and particular meanings to mean particular things, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of what philosophy is. So, you know, and this pragmatism doesn't mean like, you know, oh, well, I'm just a pragmatic guy. So I'm going to take a little bit of column A, column B. No. Pragmatism was a school of thought that kind of arose at the beginning of the 20th century, which says, which said that the truth is whatever works. So that's like the easiest schema. Whereas Nietzsche has much more, has much deeper ideas and talks a lot more about humanity as a whole. I think part of the reason why I wouldn't say that, why, why for me, Nietzsche is a lot about recognizing that there is a herd in humanity and the herd mentality of humanity and kind of realizing that there are people out there who have a different, who, who fundamentally, who perceive the world in a different way than, we, than you do, um, than we would, perhaps, I would say. And that, that's also natural. And so he, and he talks a lot. Nietzsche kind of also points out a lot in like, you know, he points out, uh, let me pull this up because I just wrote about this past week. I actually wrote, put one of my favorite quotes of Nietzsche in a piece I did about, um, what was it? Regulating human behavior in a simulation. So he has this brilliant line about the realists. This is one of those things that when I heard it, you know, we talked about the death of God in our show together, which people should definitely t- check out. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is this was one that when I heard it, I'm like, holy cow! I'm in for a whole new set of uh, a whole new set of ideas, kind of being forced into my brain. So this is a response to realism, um, and you might also say that realism is materialism. So you know, Marxists would very much be caught up in this sort of idea. Uh, a lot of socialists would as well. But I also think, interestingly enough, some of the more constructionist people would as well, right? Like, oh, well, every gender is a social construct. Okay. That doesn't maybe that doesn't answer what we think it does. So this is so this is the quote, and um, and it goes: every feeling and sensation contains a piece of this old life, and some fantasy, some prejudice, some unreason, 
some ignorance, some fear, and ever so much else has contributed to it and worked on it. That mountain there, that cloud there, what is real in that? Subtract the phantasm and every human contribution from it, my sober friends, if you can. If you can forget your descent, your past, your training, all of your humanity and animality, there is no reality for us, not for you either, my sober friends. And so the line subtract the phantasm of and every human contribution from it is another way of saying that is if you remove everything that has been said about a mountain, what's real about a mountain? That's Nietzsche. Yeah. William James is William James would be a little more along the lines of, well, you know, a man is entitled to, you know, he has a he has a bit about um a man should be entitled to his religious beliefs, but his man should a man should also be entitled to a holiday from discovering every last little answer. So it's so which is kind of to say, like, listen, you know, you can believe in God, Allah, you could be a, you know, you could believe in the God of the New Testament, Old Testament. In Hinduism, in Buddhism, you know, you could believe in a larger idea of consciousness in like Buddhism, but you can also like not decide, you can kind of decide to not have any answers on that and not actually figure out every last little thing about it. While at the same time, you can, you know, you can work, right? You can earn a living, you can have a family and you can still be a good person without having all of these things tied up. So in the idea of pragmatism, again, truth isn't necessarily... It's not what the skeptics say, which is that if a truth exists, we can't necessarily know it, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's not, the, it's not to say there is no truth. That's nihilism. And nihilism is boring, people listening. And so it's not that there is no truth. It's not that we can't necessarily know whether there is an objective truth. It's like, if it works, then that is maybe that is actually true. Now, where you see, now there were problems with this because a lot of people at the early 20th century in the light of this were saying, well, you know, we have this scientific mindset to the idea of government. And that that seems to work, right? So you know, there's there's dark and light to all of this. But that that would be my best that would be my best way of. Uh, hopefully, that made sense because it's been a while since I've 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 uh, thought about that paper that I wrote a long time ago. But sure. I could probably pull it up. The uh, the the Nietzsche quote and then your analogy of the mountain reminds me a little bit of the like Catholic and Orthodox and to a lesser extent. Anglican doctrine of cons- or transubstantiation mm. uh, in the Eucharist, where the the bread and wine aren't like symbolizing Jesus's body and blood, but they like actually become it, even though they look like the 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 bread and wine or the the, the cracker and grape juice or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, by saying the words over that bread and wine, the priest uh, through the Holy Spirit actually turns the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, and it's it's it kind of gets down to the Aristotelian concepts of like the the accidents and the essence and the substance of the of the matter or mm-hmm. or like the spiritual nature of it i guess mm-hmm. yeah so you said in philosophy we use words to mean particular things what what about the like evolution of language i mean gender gender obviously is sort of the hot button thing right now mm-hmm. where you know we're seeing a separation between the word sex and the word gender where one is a biological reality and the other one is a subjective like feeling i guess yeah is that do you think that that's a good thing or a bad thing or i think linguistic drift is inevitable but i think i do think that there's so there's a few different right there's a few different ways to answer this i think that uh linguistic drift is inevitable so there will be changing meanings over time changing spellings different understandings and that's again where so I was told once, I think I was reading Kant, 
And my professor said, good philosophy is supposed to, is trying to change the way that you think. And it's trying to like change the way that you process information. And that's one of the reasons why it can be so confusing. So there is, you know, there is the philosophical realm and then there's kind of the practical realm and then there's the political realm and there's the, you know, we can keep, we can keep subdividing Mm. this. Um, I do think that one thing that I like about philosophy in general is that it has the ability to kind of cross through. It kind of rejects this, in my mind at least, it rejects this like Germanic notion that we must have like very individualized knowledge found in one person right it's not that it's not that you study the classics it's that you study the classics between 1950 or 1836 and 1836.5 and that you know that's going to be your area of expertise yeah. um i have always taken more of a total view of things uh which is why you know like if you talk to some people i probably wouldn't be considered that great but you know like i said i'm, I'm here doing what i can as it relates to the gender gender and sex in particular i've i have i written about this yet no um, yeah, have I? Yes, actually I have. Um, so I've been, I've been trying to take Jordan Peterson would talk a lot about these studies of how, you know, in the Nordic countries, differences between men and women seem to maximize, even though they've, they've adopted the most egalitarian policies. I've studied other people, you know, who argue determinism or biological, you know, fundamentalism, maybe some would call it, I wouldn't call it that. But this question of nature and nurture, maybe to put it a different way, is like perennial. And I do think that there's a case to be made for both. And I don't think it's one exclusive thing. I think it's a mixture of the both. Okay, that's not really interesting. What is interesting? Well, how does that relate to sex, sex and gender? And how does that relate linguistically? This is, I'm not, this isn't any final thoughts, but it's an interesting thing to ponder of like my understanding of the English language in part is that it has been highly influenced by um, it was, you know, it, it traces its roots are Germanic in origin, and then it, there's also French roots as well. So, roman, you know, so like the Romantic languages. And if you look at, if you look at our words and where they come from, the fancy sounding words, so gender, anything with more than one syllable actually has its roots in more of like a Romantic language, a Latin language, uh, you know, French in particular. And then a word like sex actually comes from from like a Germanic word. I'm sure there'll be more that kind of come to me as we go on. Um, but like fire and flame. I mean, that's a sim- that's mutton or mutton or pork or, or pork or bovine or um, what, what would that be? Beef Bacon. or bovine. Yeah. I, 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 there used to be a very, I used to have a lot more of these offhand. But as it relates to sex and gender, we have this, the real question is to what extent are we talking about something that's real, so to speak? And to what extent are we talking about differences and definitions? And so... That's I, th- I see that at the root of a lot of the questions here. And I think, but the broader point, I do think that we are so rich as a society that to where we don't even, I think, I think those of us who have grappled with economics understand this a little bit better. But if you haven't grappled with economics and specifically the type of ep- economics that deals more with like human behaviors or the Austrian school, broadly speaking, you don't quite appreciate the richness that exists, the level of wealth that exists in today's world versus a couple of hundred years ago. So let's take, for example, the larger scope of individuals, because I am an individualist fundamentally, individuals who don't fit within a, you know, the, the standard gender paradigm. So a man and a woman make a baby, that's society. 
there are, and this is this is something that the trans that the, the gender activists do a disservice, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, there's and for uh, for sourcing on this, there was a great show called Taboo that National Geographic put out like twenty years, like fifteen years ago. That's amazing, and is frankly probably one of those things that I look back on and see it as very um, uh, formulating to like how I look at things because um, they just kind of address it was literally like let's look at every cultural taboo. So you have there's uh, for example, you know the two spirit. That's one example of it. And then another one would be the Fahini or the Fahini. Yeah, the Fahini in, um, I think, in the Samoa in some Pacific Island country. Now, the Fahini do not consider themselves women, but they are men who live and operate as women in a very, you know, tribal and um, traditional mindset, right? So they kind of help with the child rearing. They help with like cleaning. They do these sorts of things. Two-spirit is more of a recognition of the idea that a holy person encompasses more than just strict masculinity or strict femininity. And in fact, they actually cross between. And then there would be a third one that I would point out that I can't think of the name, but it's, but it's in India. And these are the historical instances that you can look and say, see, our Western conceptualization of gender is so limited and look at all these places. The third one in India were men who lived as women um, and would like castrate themselves willingly as a, as a member of it. And then there was a specific deity. I think it's the Hydra. Thank you. Yeah, that, would, that, that, sounds, that sounds right. And so there would be, we, we take these kind of three things and I see, okay, I think the spiritual one you have to throw out because if we're going to talk about spirituality and the beyond and you're going to try and cram it into this modern conversation of, you know, of gender, I think that's being disingenuous. I think what the what like a what a shaman or a shaw woman or a two spirit was trying to accomplish by being uh, you know the holy person of the tribe. This is in a Christian sense, by the way, this would be the Holy Spirit, right? The whole like and the idea of three in one. We have you have this in Christianity too. It's just not always talked about it in the in the proper context. Um, you know the the and Catholicism it gets more more complicated with the idea of Mary. But let's just take the Holy Spirit. The Trinity, three and one, one and three. This is a mystery you're supposed to reflect on in the faith. This is really what I think that these ancient tribes, in that I understand it, are actually talking about as it relates to somebody who moves beyond gender. So that's kind of a different thing than what we're than than like the practical aspect. So now we're left with the Fahini and we're left with the the Hydra. Um, I think the Hydra is probably most analogous to what we're dealing with today because the Fahini, because you can also in Albania there was a practice of women. Uh, foregoing the you know marriage and living as a man so that they could inherit property rights, and that's kind of what we see in the Fahini as well. Um, it's a kind of like okay, we kind of have this thing where there's a lot more men being born than women on this island. Wow. Um, you know, some of these men are obviously gay because right, so they have kind of, so they kind of develop this third role for them that works within their society, and so and again, these people they they wouldn't be they wouldn't be considered trans in a Western interpretation, but you will see these activists, uh, you will see these activists using that as, um, as, as fodder, right? So I think the Hydra is probably closer to what we're actually dealing with, which my understanding is kind of happens in, happened in like the big cities and basically a very developed uh, society for the time, which is to say in a developed society tends to be richer, right? And so I think there's a richness that suddenly there's a richness to where we live today. So let's bring it back to today where if you want to experiment, 
you actually have the luxury to experiment with mm. your gender identity, so-called, right? You actually have the luxury today and, and more so in, in 2021 than in 2001, absolutely. But even in 2001 and in 1980, there was more than in 1856 or in 1650 or in 30 AD. And so I think there's, I think that is, that's the part that people aren't discussing because from like a left-wing perspective, it doesn't make sense to discuss how wonderfully rich we are that we have this problem to deal with. And I think in some respects, we've moved beyond the idea of first world problems a little too quickly because first world problems actually put things into context. And what the people in power want to do today is put them into racial racial problems and gender problems to then divide people because it's it's not about understanding it's about control. Yeah, I think that's where the that's where the danger lies. I mean, you know, obviously, uh, I'm gay, and I'm really glad that I was born in 1982 and not you know 1922, uh, because you know it allows me to live the life that that like my body wants me to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, I'm also constantly, well, I guess not constantly, but I'm a heretic inside of the inside of that sort of subcultural orthodoxy mm. because obviously I don't, I don't buy into the woke stuff. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I have lots of transgender friends and so, you know, I, I totally buy into the, into the sex and gender bifurcation, but I don't like the authoritarianism that comes with it. Do you think that, um, do you think it's a normal thing or is it something that's kind of unique to, America or the West in 2021, that as cultures become more individualist, where, you know, my gender identity might not match the, like, general, you know, I mean, what, maybe something like 98% of people, 99% of people, their gender and their sex match. And so you can make a generalized, you can make a generalization on that. But if my particular gender identity doesn't match my sex, then I don't I don't fit that generalization, and and that's definitely something that I think that a sensitive person um, should take into account when dealing with me as an individual. So th- that's what I mean by an individualist culture. Mm-hmm. But we are becoming more collectivist politically, and mm-hmm. with with collectivist politics, it's necessarily more authoritarian. I think. Do you think that that's that's a normal thing in like the history of political and cultural uh, yeah. evolution, or is it something that's unique to now? I think I think the part that's unique to now are the means by which we can do it. And not even we, the means by which people in power can assert control. Because there is, so one interesting, one thing, you know, going back to the skeptical idea, right? One interesting thing that I kind of came upon accidentally in my ruminations early on was just was kind of this realization that if you read old philosophy, a lot of them aren't dealing with the political day-to-day. Why? Because there were kings. And so that was for kings to decide. And then there was the separate area of how you should live the best life. Today, for reasons that I would maybe a few years ago have said were stupid, but now kind of understanding this biological impulse, and, and if we look at politics as a manifestation of biology, biology it kind of makes more sense. I think the method of control has extended and become more difficult, uh, or become more pervasive, right? Which is where, um, it, it, that's where, that's really what's different. Because if you look back and you look back at different histories and time periods, 
where, you know, there were issues, you will see the same types of arguments happening. And, you know, I recently wrote a piece, um, all this has happened before and all this would happen again, kind of in relation to the COVID, uh, the COVID, uh, the, the, the vaccine passports conversation. And what I didn't even realize, and, you know, this is me being a bad, a bad, uh, a bad person, I guess, but I knew it from Battlestar Galactica. Turns out it's actually first Ecclesiastes and it's, but it's this very deep idea of what is knowledge good for? And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's also encompassing the idea is there is a time for all things, but all this is, so all this has happened before all this will happen again. There is nothing new under the sun. I like the show ancient aliens. And I think that's a marker you can of an open mind to somebody who likes the show ancient aliens. And I was recently rewatching their early ones because, you know, Jason Stapleton had pointed out that they're a very good way of looking at how to use influence to try and present an alternative case for something. And it kind of just opens your mind. If you know, it's, it's, I think it's a mark of, of the type of mind that we're dealing with too. And so one thing as it relates to the, to the trans issue is how small we're actually going as far as what percentage of the population we're attempting to, if you like, integrate. Um, and this is, you know, this isn't unique to me. Jordan Peterson has talked about this and the whole conceptualization of, okay, if I'm talking to, if I'm talking to you, I'm going to try and be, you know, like I will not even try to be, I'm naturally very deferential and kind. And I'm not here to, I'm not here to make you feel bad about who you are. And I hope you're not here to make me feel bad about who I am. Um, and we're having an open dialogue, but then other people are going to listen to this. So if I'm talking to five people, can I offend one of them? If I'm talking to a hundred people, can I offend one of them? And the problem with the victim culture that the political classes, political class and you know, the, the, the universities, if you will, have inculcated in people is that this victim mentality, which is like an inversion of honor, of, of honor culture, because again, there's nothing new under the sun. This mentality is actually manifesting itself in such a way that, okay, well, I can't offend anybody, so I'm just going to shut up. And then now we're seeing, and then we see as a consequence of that radicalization of political thought. And to maybe make it a little too simplistic, right? But I think um, that's what I worry about because it's one of those things that we can sit here and talk for you know over an hour and maybe come to some kind of a conclusion. But to what extent is that? To what extent can that be mainstreamed? And I think that's where you see a lot of people who would otherwise not take the historical look and just be like, "Well, no, I'm not going to deal with this stuff." And, you know, and I'm a I'm a single guy, and I even see it. It's it's even you know it's not it's not as strict as um. It's not as strict as just the LGBTQ community because it's, it's mainstreamed, at least, you know, I'm outside of Chicago. It's mainstreamed into here to where it's, you know, it's like, oh, well, I'm a queer pansexual. Can we admit that maybe we're going a little far uh, of this? But again, this is where I think, but then I, I respond to that in my mind of, well, you know, this, this is the question of identity. And what does identity mean in the 21st century where you can literally be, if you have enough presence of mind, you could be what you want to be. You know, we have that we we have the technology, right? It's, it's a complicated issue and people make it too simple when they bring it into politics. Uh, queer pansexual, that, that reminded me of something I saw on Twitter the other day, and this is a complete sidebar and I'm not, we're, we're not going to dig into it, but I saw someone who identifies with they, them pronouns, but they mm-hmm. describe themselves as a bisexual, which uh, to me, that's, that's almost like a contradiction. Like you, if you're going to use they, them, then you should at least go all the way and call yourself a pansexual. Like, Right. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, and you know, maybe obviously this person probably hasn't put thought into into what they were 
what they were saying in their Twitter bio. Mm-hmm. This has just gotten so this this is again this is where like Nietzsche and thought really you know if you're willing to take the ride this is this is what's going on. There is a herd, and there are if you will there are multiple herds, and there are people who follow, and there are people who lead, and then there are people who are outside of that paradigm a little bit, but not by much. So there are many people who are just manifesting what they think is what is what they should be, and they don't question it. If you want the best, the best iteration of this is in the Devil Wears Prada, is in the Devil Wears Prada where Anne Hathaway is sitting there and she's saying, you know, well, I just bought this at Marshall's or whatever thing, and um, her name is escaping me. Uh, wow, Iron, she played the Iron Lady, Marilyn Streep, Marilyn's whatever. Yeah, Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep, thank you. But and then Meryl Streep says, "That's Cerulean blue." We did Cerulean Blue 15 years ago in this catalog. And then that, then, and then so, and she kind of goes about and she looks at, she, she traces in a very short period of time how that particular shade of blue made it all the way to Anne Hathaway, who thought that she was rejecting the, fan, the fast fashion industry. And so it's, there is, once you accept the idea that there are people who are trying to influence and move public opinion or, in, or the individual mind on a massive level, a lot of things start to make more sense than they did before. And understanding that for a lot of people, this is the same thing of if you were raised in a very, you know, if you were raised in a time where everyone went to church on Sunday, you would go to church on Sunday, right? There is, um, there is a huge corollary if you read works from like the scientific revolution in particular, because this is where you start to see the change in language, where there is a lot of deference paid to you know, to the Christian religion, to Catholicism, largely speaking, um, you know, to the teachings of the gospel, and and then, but at the same time, okay, so we're going to pay, we're going to pay homage, but then we're going to talk science for a little bit, and we see the same kind of thing happening now in modern circles. We're like, well, listen, you know, obviously we have to, you know, we we, we need to incorporate marginalized voices. I, as a white cis heteronormative man, shouldn't really be talking right now, and yet here I am, and I'm going to do my mea culpa. So that I can, so that I can have a say in this, in this, in this field, or I'm going to take the notion that I shouldn't have a say in this field. But now, but guess who I do get to have a say with? With my white cis heteronormative family, and so I get to preach to them this message. And it's, um, it's people pick up ideas and run with them. It's not. It's. I don't think it's the case that. I don't think it's the case again. There's nothing new under the sun that we're like that we're all necessarily as unique as we'd like to believe. Ecclesiastes is my favorite book of the Bible, by the way. I think, I think there's just so much there, uh, and I think "Turn, Turn, Turn" by the Birds is like directly mm-hmm. taken from it, which is also yep. one of my yeah, favorite a time songs. to mourn, a time to yeah. a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to live, a time to die, a time to till the soil. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, and it gets into. I mean, it's it's even kind of integral. To bring it mm-hmm. back to that, I mean, it, it, you know, it, there's a time for individualism and there's a time for collectivism as well. Did you ever see the watch the Book of Eli? I know. So this was a movie early early to mid two thousands, I think, maybe the late aughts, I think, is what we're supposed to call it. But it was uh, Samuel L. Jackson, and it's this post it's this post apocalyptic world, and here he is, this badass walking across the country because God sent him on a mission to bring the Bible to you know to to go west. That was his. That was his understanding. And, you know, spoiler alert, it turns out he's blind, but he's like this awesome fighter. And, you know, and then the Bible was a Braille Bible because they had burned all the Bibles before this. And, but he finally makes it to the, he finally makes it. Basically, people have taken um, uh, that, that prisoner island. I 
I Alcatraz. don't know what's... Thank you, Alcatraz, um, and turned it into like a new library. Okay. So in the movie, his enemy is this guy who has built up a very useful town, you know, a, a functioning town, right? Where they like ration water and he's the one who controls the source of the water. Therefore, he's the one that controls the town. And when he hears Samuel L. Jackson's character um, praying, or really he see Mila Kunis is in the movie. So Mila Kunis does like a prayer and he's like, whoa, where the hell did you learn how to pray? She's like, oh, well, this guy showed it to me. He's like, and he had a book where he said he learned it from. And so this guy, um, and this, this is like a really important thing that I think people need to grapple with. And that includes people in our space um, because this guy wanted the Bible. Why? Because he wanted to control people. And certainly, you know, the best understanding of like the new atheist movement, I have a lot of criticisms with them, but you know, the best understanding of the new atheist movement or just atheism in general is this rejection of the, um, of the rigidity of uh, of some of these the of, of of you know Catholicism Christianity broadly speaking you can see, I I'll speak from that just because I'm a Western person so I won't bother to get into how this changes in a in an Islamic context or in a Hindu you know Hinduistic um, context what have you but you can so I can understand there there's a lot wrong with it um, um but it basically deals with this these issues of religion and there is something to the there is something to the story that religion you know is used to control people. Right, ideally for the best of reasons, but not always. So this character wants to take over the world by using the words because he understands that those words have power. And one thing that I'm seeing right now in the reaction to this wokeism is our people looking to talk about the Bible again. Right, Jordan Peterson kind of started this in a broader sense, and it's and and, it, and it's it's a little worrisome because I'm kind of seeing it's like because there is so much power to those kinds of words when we talk about them. And where I'm, what I'm seeing people do is use them as a method of control and not as a method of understanding. Because they, if for no other reason, then they, then they get that it, that it makes more sense maybe to do that to get their way. I don't know. I don't, have, I don't have final thoughts on this, but this has been something that's bugging me. Because it's like, oh, well, I'm going to look to Christianity for my answers. It's like, okay, but like, you know, what is your Christianity? Is your Christianity that we're just going to instill order on the world? Right, it's like okay. Well, where do we run them? Where do we run a foul when we do something like that? What was the? How was it that atheism could even come about if Christianity is this perfect understanding to everything? And I say this as somebody who considers himself nominally Christian, if not a practicing Catholic. Right, like I, I have a lot of love for these stories, and I'm not somebody who has ever rejected them. But that's why I say I walk the path of the philosopher. It's just I don't necessarily take a religious outlook on on all of this stuff. I don't know. How does that strike you? Because I'm, because it's something that I'm, I'm, I'm a little worried about right now. Yeah, I think Jordan Peterson and also Vin Armani, uh, who recently came out with his book Render Into Caesar, has they've kind of done a, a good job of reframing Christianity. I guess uh, it's not so much the dogma and the doctrine of Christianity that they're that they're looking at, as far as I'm concerned. It's more the like the logic of well, I mean, the logic, first of all, of the Trinity, where, you know, you've got, you've got the, the rules, like the rule maker is the father, and then you've got the, the chaos. Um, so you've got the order in the father, you've got the chaos in the Holy Spirit, where, you know, it's, this is just God manifesting in the world, like, mm-hmm. like free-flowing, um, literally the word spirit in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin is the word for wind. 
Um, yeah. And the holy wind is just wherever it blows. And then you've got the word, the son, Jesus, who makes sense of it all, the logos. And to me, like, even if you don't believe in the resurrection or even if you differ on issues of morality, which, you know, obviously I think uh, some of that stuff seems arbitrary and some of it seems a little hyper rigid, that particular thing, along with the the narrative structure of the Bible, which uh, a, a Catholic theologian named, named Scott Hahn uh, is probably the best at this. He calls it salvation history and how it goes from the, the Bible follows the path of man's relationship with God from an individual to a couple, to a family with Noah, to a tribe with Abraham, hmm. to a nation under the judges, to mm-hmm. a kingdom under David, um, and then to the entire world under mm-hmm. under Christ in his in his in his kingdom, in his mm-hmm. you know, uh, sort of universal Catholic relationship with the world. Yeah. Um, so from that from sort of an intellectual standpoint, I think that Christianity to me has the best like structural underpinnings, if not truth with a capital T, I guess. Mm. And, and, you know, I mean, from a, from a postmodern or even skeptical standpoint, I think that probably trying to identify truth is kind of fraught with, with uh, potential, potential problems. But, and I think for me that also manifests that should, so like that could manifest itself in the way of, well, anybody who's going to question things, I need to label a heretic. Right. And that's yeah. when you, that's when you see this. Um, that's, that's what we're seeing right now, by the way, that is exactly what we are going through. Um, we are going through a time where there will be heretics and those heretics will be judged by the authority. This is, uh, this isn't to denigrate the, you know, to the Catholic church or any Christianity, but we we're allegorical creatures. We're mimetic creatures. This is the best way I can explain it. This is the time we are heading into. Um, which is, you know, kind of dangerous when you and I are having this sort of a conversation, but you know, here we are. But um, so that so that's the time. So so it can be manifested that way, which is kind of going after the individual. What I try to do, and what I would suggest other people try to do, is use those resources to people who have power, right? Because the people who have power are the ones who deserve the most skepticism for what they're saying. And that would go for me at, you know, where I'm at right now, and for me and you in 20 years. When we're, you know, we've got a freaking media empire underneath us, right? You know, I, I would expect people to kind of look at what I have to say with a lot of skepticism. And I recognize the fact that what I'm trying, what I try to do in my show is build that level of trust to where you can say like, okay, hey, you know, what I try to do is sense making, right? I'm trying to make yeah. sense of the world. And whatever else, whatever larger ideas I might have, that's what I try to do in like a practical way every single day with something that, you know, you can read while you're sitting on the toilet. I mean, you know, and that's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of utility to that, but that's, but so there's, I like to say reason is a double-edged sword, right? And so it's, and, you know, or if you want to borrow from the the Tao, the yin yang, or, you know, even again, the idea of the Trinity, there is a light and a dark. There is this turn to everything. Everything can be understood in a positive or a negative sense. And yeah, I get it that that makes the world a complicated place. So, you know, if you want to take the route of, well, I'm just going to follow this religion which is what I see a lot, which is what a lot of people do. That's awesome. Then we have the atheism movement, largely speaking. And so people still have that same search for meaning. And what do they replace it with? Well, they're replacing it with the state. Such to the point now that, again, we're kind of seeing this whole thing. We're like, oh, we're just going to kind of 
I don't know. It's it's this um, it's this conflagration that we that we see in in every instance, and it's there is there's the philosophical conversation that we're kind of having now, which is like let's actually work through the issues or try to. But then you know we can't the world can't sit around for us to figure it out, and the world hasn't sat around for us to figure it out throughout the eons, you know, throughout the thousands of years of of the Western tradition. You you understand? So it's like. Yeah. There is that there is that point where you have to make action and you have to go and act in the world. So how do you do that? Well, okay, you know, treat people with some deference, try to be understanding. But that kind of falls both that that again, it's a double-edged sword. That falls both ways. So that would go for the person who's in the small town who, like, you know, maybe to, to draw a very easy parallel that, you know, the black family moves into an all-white neighborhood. It should follow for the people in that, the white people in that neighborhood. And it should also follow that when some guy who grew up in a small town in Iowa comes to a major city and doesn't understand that doesn't understand like what black culture is, that he might have some questions about things or not understand the way that's or let's put it, let's remove race from the situation. How do you perceive the police when you live in a small town versus how do you perceive the police when you live in a major metropolitan area? Right. And this is a very and if you can't entertain those ideas, then please. Stop spreading your opinion because you're not doing a service to anybody. If you want to have an, an open mind and you want to have a conversation, then that's fantastic. And by the way, don't listen to people who, who put that out there too. You know, a lot of times people will send me stuff that's like, oh, did you see this? I'm like, yes, somebody is always going to say something stupid about everything. There you go. I solved your problem for you. Somebody is always going to say something stupid about everything. So please, for the love of God, don't just send me every last little inane thing that somebody says. Let's work to find the real thing that we're actually fighting against. Yeah, the the interpretation of the police um, is a. I mean, it's certainly poignant to me and you because we live in Minneapolis and Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, respectively. And right now, as we're recording in the middle of April 2021, we're currently going through the Derek Chauvin trial. Yep. Uh, there have been major police shootings or one shooting and one attempted arrest that ended in the death of the arrestee. Like within well, no, the last one here too. Yeah. That's I'm talking about the yeah. little kid. Yeah. The, the little kid. That, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, I, and I, I posted about it. Actually, I reposted something that Spike Cohen posted about the, the kid in Chicago. What was his name? Adam Toledo. Okay. And someone commented, but there was a gun at the scene. And I'm like, what does that matter? Was the kid the, the kid had his his hands up, and mm-hmm. the the gun was not anywhere near him. Like, even if there's a reason the cops say drop your weapon and put your hands up, like the the point of saying that is so that they don't have to shoot you. Mm-hmm. And that's 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 my interpretation of the cops coming from, uh, you know, someone who grew up in a big city and has lived in another big city for his entire adult life. Yeah, I think I lived I lived in a suburb for six months, um, but other than that, like I've only ever I've only ever known the police as like an adversarial force. Mm-hmm. I think this person who uh, it was it was kind of it was it, it was interesting in this conversation I had with this person. Um, I said, "Look, I, I have a feeling if you know if this were a post about like uh, what was the name of the what was the name of the family that God they like they like were." occupying some national park office or something like that. Oh, the um the Bundy family. Yeah, the Bundys or um you know, maybe the Branch Davidians or mm-hmm. 
the 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 guy in the hotel that was gunned down. Um, uh, not Duncan Lamp. His name was Adam Shaver. Yeah, but also Duncan Lamp. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not a race thing. It's just a you know you can sympathize with these people because you know you're a middle aged white person who lives in the suburbs or a rural, rural area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you don't think that these, the same person when George Floyd died last year was trying to come up with all these reasons. Yeah. He beat, he beat a, a pregnant woman and he had all these drugs in his system mm-hmm. and like all of this stuff that, uh, to me is not germane to the conversation of whether the police officer was acting in a justifiable manner. Mm-hmm. And well, and this is the way in which people interact with these things like a spectator sport. Right. Right. And so, and listen, all the well for it. People who want to interact with these big ideas as a spectator sport are going to be the people who fund our endeavors here. You know, you and Blackbird, me at binawake.com. Um, you know, that is, that's the truth of the matter, right? I think, I think part of what we're seeing with podcasting is a rise of a new sense-making network that is akin, again, you know, allegorically speaking, to the rise of spectator sports. So I haven't, don't have any final thoughts on that, but it's been something I've been thinking about lately, you know, in the context of our conversation and like continuing to have conversations and all these other interesting people that I'm meeting doing this show. But I want to get, I want to hone in on the other, a couple other things you said. First is what I've been hitting a lot is racism in America is the oldest and most persistent method of social control. It does not matter which way that racism is flowing, whether we are hating blacks today, whether we are hating Mexicans, whether we are hating Asians, whether we are hating Europeans, whites, doesn't matter. Racism is the oldest and most persistent method of social control. The people in power who are using a racial narrative are, and this includes people in government and people in the media and people in academia. And I won't say the boogie word. You know, I won't say the boogie word of of cathedral. Oops. Um, You know, but like, that is that is what we are experiencing. It is a method of social control. These people are not serious. They do not care about you. They do not care about your children. They don't care about your race, for that matter. It's a method of social control, and it's used to continually divide people. To the extent that this is prevalent in the cops, I wrote an article last week where I said, what obesity and sloth mean for your rights? And I had very four simple questions. Why is it that the police are not expected to maintain a high level, a high level of physical um, physical health. Why are police departments not churning out de-escalation machines? If it's such a stressful job, why don't you select for people who have a strong mental health? And why don't you make mental health a priority for the people who are there? And if you know, and I can't remember the fourth one off the top of my head, but it's basically just another play on that. And it's this. So okay. Let's remove all the political spectator sport of it and let's actually hone in on what we're talking about here, right? Which is what the, I think the libertarians do very well, but people get, but they get caught up in the spectator sport as well of things. The reason why we have issues with the police is because there is no incentive to fix the police because of the monopolistic nature of police departments. And the, the people in power can push a racial narrative. That is the same. I mean, how many posts have you seen? Because I've seen them of saying, you know, my grandmother was marching for this. Why are we still having the same march? Well, you know, part of that is because you keep electing the same kinds of people with the same kinds of ideas, Mm -hmm. you know, and part of that is because your thought leaders as such are more interested in controlling your mind than they are giving you an understanding and having and taking that Christian notion of reconciliation and forgiveness and applying that in a secular sense. Yeah, newsflash. I mean, you might have voted for Kamala Harris for Attorney General of California, 
because she was a woman of color and looked like you and may have had an upbringing like yours. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I mean, she's no different. I, I don't want to, I don't want to use like, you know, internal jargon, but mm-hmm. she's, she's no different from if she had been a white male prosecutor with absolutely no sympathy for black people in practice. Right. Uh, and now, and now she's the person who's in charge of American in- immigration policy. Mm-hmm. Do you think she's going to, do you think she's going to do your bidding as the immigrations are? Of course not. Well, so what the Marxists have always believed, and I don't know how comfortable you are. I'm very comfortable with talking about Marxism and communism. I think that, um, you know, there's that, like anybody who eschews that I think is not an honest actor in many respects. Um, one thing that the Marxists, one way in which the Marxists disagree with the liberal tradition, broadly speaking. And I do, and you know, sorry to the monarchists out there, but I do think of myself still in that broader tradition. Maybe in the way that Socrates thought of himself as a member of Athens, just to make that very complicated for the people who will follow that. Um, The fourth question, by the way, is if you can't run a mile, how can you keep the peace, right? That's a very practical question. If you can't run a mile, how can you possibly expect it to be keeping the peace in these situations? And the idea is these people are not trained properly and there's no incentive to make it better. And in fact, they're asked to, and then, you know, if you want to layer on top of that, they're asked to enforce immoral laws. What the Marxists have always believed is that there is a fundamental difference between the oppressor and the oppressed class. This isn't to say that class analysis isn't useful, but it is to say that that is a fundamental mistake. There are different psychopathies within individual within individuality, but in, but overall, we kind of can all, at least those of us enough who are enough awake to understand this sort of thing, who are who are conscious enough, if you will, to understand like the darker aspects of our nature. Um, you know, this Jungian idea of integrating the shadow. There is there are you you can understand that there is a dark side to who you are as a person. You know, we have. All, Maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but I'd like to think everybody has done things that they regret in their life and not necessarily for the wrong reasons. And when you look at someone like Kamala Harris, what pe- what these people are doing in the media is saying, see, look, she is a black woman, half black, didn't, wasn't raised in the United States, very, you know, Pete Berkeley parents, upper middle class upbringing, like probably better than me. But, you know, but she's a black see, woman. I had, so that I had no idea that that was the case. I had yeah, no idea yeah. that that was the case. I because because of the 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 debate shot she took at Joe Biden about being the girl that was bust, uh, and then the T-shirt that her campaign sold. I just kind of figured she would she was raised in a lower middle class to lower class African American no, or mixed race. Were, her dad was black. Was a her her parents met at Berkeley. This is my understanding. And I could be wrong. I don't you know I don't follow sure. these things super closely. But her mom was an Indian immigrant. Um, her dad, I believe, was a Jamaican immigrant. And like her grandfather owned slaves in Jamaica as a black man is my understanding. And she and her mom left her dad when she was young. And so she was raised by her Indian immigrant mother in Canada for a lot of her life and kind of came back to the U.S. to be educated as an adult, Boy. which is interesting when you kind of consider, you know, Barack Obama as an interesting allegory to that as well. And I'm not this isn't a criticism of these people. And it has nothing to do with the form of their race. This is the point, though, is they can be presented by people in the media in academia saying, see, look, they are going to be something different. Right now in Chicago, we have a openly gay black woman as our mayor. You understand? An openly gay black woman as the mayor. And they're still calling for her to retire, for her to resign. And there's and you know, if you talk to the hardcore activists, they don't like her either. Um, so it's the form of the person is accidental, right? This is where, and this is one of the reasons why I think um 
Like myself personally, I don't care. I'll have the conversation about race. I'll have the conversation about gender because I've done the work of kind of knowing my heart and I'm not so, um, I won't be, I was bullied enough as a kid to where I'm not going to be bullied out of having a conversation now, especially when I can have like a platform where I can espouse ideas that I think will help people. And, and, and the helpful thing is to realize that when, when somebody tells you, well, you should feel really good. You should feel really good about electing a black woman to vice president in the United States. They're trying to control you. They don't care about, they don't actually care about you. They don't care about the life that you're going to live. They're trying to control you so that they can keep getting more power and they can keep amassing their own personal fortunes. And, you know, and like, there's nothing wrong with amassing a personal fortune, but don't do it on the backs of lies and don't do it on the backs of putting innocent people in jail. Can we have that as a standard? <laughs> yeah. Um, let's get back into the kind of bigger picture philosophical stuff. Um, so Thad Russell, of whom I'm a big fan, uh, Same. considers himself a postmodernist. And what he, the way that he kind of defines that in shorthand is he's an agnostic in all things, similar to the way that you say you question everything. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, so so that's one kind of, when I thought skeptic before hearing you, that was one thing that I thought of when I heard that, that word. Another thing that I thought of when I heard that word was especially kind of between Jordan Peterson's rise and Donald Trump's presidency, there was a, there was a real popular uh, like YouTube quote unquote community called the skeptic community. And it had people like the armored skeptic and Sargon of Akkad and all these kind of like um, mostly anonymous people who called themselves skeptics. And they're very different from Thad Russell because they're kind of dogmatic in their skepticism. Mm. And then the third thing that I thought of when I, th- when I thought skeptic was like rational wiki. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, and maybe like lesswrong.com, that kind of thing where they're like hyper, hyper rationalist and also dogmatic about that. Uh, and, you know, I, I think, um, oh God, what's his name? Uh, Alexander, Jason Alexander, Scott Alexander, something like that. Okay. Uh, yeah, you, you know, I mean, the 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 Slate Star Codex uh, guy. Um, these kind of three communities were what I thought of when I thought of skepticism. And you're a little bit different from that, from all three of them, but you kind of merge all three. Do you consider them fellow travelers of you? Do you, I mean, I, I can't imagine that skeptic, the skeptic community, quote unquote, is any different from any other quote unquote community in that they have like the no no true Scotsman thing. I mean, you yeah. know, we're libertarians, so we know all about that. Yeah. Are, is there like, oh, you're not really a skeptic in, in those circles? Or do you not even travel in those circles? Are you more aloof? I think I'm more aloof in that respect um, because I have this like weird intellectual journey across multiple universities and then, you know, not actually making it into post-grad for, you know, for reasons that I'll tell one day. And, um, you know, that I'm, that it's one of, it's those interesting things. I mean, there was a time in my life where I thought I was going to be in the army. There was a time in my life where I thought I was going to be a university professor. Now I'm at this point where I don't know where I'm going, but it might actually have to do something with war and something with being a professor and still teaching. Um, but to answer your question, I think one thing that I have, we, we talked a little bit and in, in, in when you came on my show about my conceptualization of the paradox of identity which to be fair to everybody listening, if you disagree with that, I haven't quite spelled it out just yet. But effectively, it's this thing of, okay, so we have this word skepticism. 
And it can mean different things to different people, including some really good things and some really bad things, right? Same, you know, you can do this with the word Christian, with the word libertarian, with the word Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, progressive, so on and so forth. Um, so what part of that is why when I do an interview with somebody, I ask, how do you self-identify? This is why I'm so interested in the idea of identity, because I think we live in a time where for people who are conscious enough to realize it, they can actually choose who they are as a person. They can choose their identity far more than you ever could in history. If you live in a town of 500 people and you're the one outsider, and that's all you can ever know, you're not going to last very long or you're going to become like the hermit, right? Who kind of exists outside or the old man who people, the old man who people mock, right? Because we're not, we're apes. You know, we are, we're freaking apes, man. And we're these mimetic creatures that will copy what's around us. Whereas like, I know you have it. And I know a lot of people who are listening have this as well, where you are in a situation with people you care about, who you have, who you have a relationship with. And you're like, oh, I can't say that. Like, oh, I, I shouldn't talk like this right now. Like, I have to move myself out of this mode of speaking. Like, I have to do it. I, I've become pretty good about doing it um, as a consequence of having the show because that's kind of my outlet now where it's like, okay, hey, if you want to hear these thoughts, this is where you can go for it. Um, and then it's a consequence of like of, of work, right? But it's there's like work me who isn't going to bring up these deep topics. And then there's me, me who is. And we li- and with the internet and the fact that like you and I can connect across hundreds of miles and like literally just being you know oh we had a friend you know Jose Galison was was the guy who told me to reach out to you and it's like okay for sure I'm going to reach out to him and talk to him and then we can have this really fundamental conversation and I've done I've done that in my personal life like my closest friends are all people who I can have these kinds of conversations with because this is kind of who I am as a person would I be this same person if I lived a thousand years ago I don't think so. Now, how is this traced to ancient astronaut theory? Well, they, what they will argue is that these people, and I, I think there's a truth to this, these people were almost, if not just as intelligent as we were, they were just lacking technical capability and the language with which to understand things that they were perceiving. And so the, this is, Mark Twain answered the, tried to answer this question in his book, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Right, like it's and it's and it's an age-old question. If you dropped somebody from a hundred years ago to today, what would be the toughest thing to explain to them? What you know, what would it be? I do think there's something to be said for the fact that an individual and in, dropped in a different country at a different time would actually look different than how they do dropped in America in the 21st century. And I've kind of forgotten what your initial question was, how it relates and how it goes through. So that's where I start. Is I always try to, I try to take people at their word. And that's where I start. And I'm not somebody who will say, well, obviously you're not an atheist because you agree with me on all these things about morality. So therefore, you can't be an atheist because an atheist is without morality. That's not a sufficient... And same thing with like, oh, well, you can't really be a Christian because you're such a rational person. And the only rational, the only, and only an irrational person would accept a God into their life or accept that somebody is their personal Lord and Savior. Mm. And there is... Um, and I think that just that encompasses a lot more human thought that like exists at a certain level to where it doesn't matter how it manifests itself. And this is what I mean when I say the paradox of identity is there are those people who there are those people who will be Christian and be really, really bad Christians, just as there are people who are atheists and will be really, really bad atheists in whatever sense you want to understand that. And yet, are we going to say that? I, and yet, if I'm a Christian, 
I'm going to say that those atheists are representative of the whole, the bad ones. And then if I'm an atheist, I'm going to say those bad Christians are representative of the whole, right? So it doesn't matter if I will talk about the wonderful priests I've met in my life. You're always going to bring up the one that raped you and, and rightly so, right? And so we have to kind of struggle with this in this conversation that exists across millions of people in an instantaneous way where you have to just react to a story and you don't actually get to process it. Which I, which now that I'm doing active content is really something I've been pondering. Like one of the, one of the, one of the articles that I haven't written yet is like, what the hell is a second thought? And why do we have this concept of second thoughts? Right? Like, you know, cause I had a, I had a personal instance where I was dating somebody and then I started to have second thoughts and that's what I was thinking about. And then it was like, wait, why do we have this conception of a second thought? Why is it a second thought and not a third? How does this, it's just this, um, trying to understand is also I think a difference for me, like I talk about setting truth aside and I talk about understanding and expression. So I try to understand people when I'm doing, when I'm doing things the best way I know how I'm trying to understand somebody's position so that I can express my position in in opposition to that. And I don't know that that makes me a good philosopher. I don't know that that, that's going to make me, that, that would make me a good politician and thank God for that. But I like to think it makes me somebody worth listening to. Um, if I could be so bold as to say something like that. Um, so earlier you said uh, that there's no truth, there's nihilism, and nihilism is boring. Mm-hmm. So, okay, let's let's grant that. Let's grant that there is such thing as truth. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that with all the variables that exist, that truth is knowable? No, that's why I'm a skeptic. Yeah. So you can dig and dig and dig and dig and dig, and you'll you'll never get to the bottom, do you think? I would say that, uh, yes. I, I, well, I don't, well, no, I don't know. I can't answer that in affirmative. Maybe there will be a day where we understand everything. But I would say that if, 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 if truth is a matter of putting the right, word in, right words in the right order, we would have figured it out already. And of course, this is where, you know, this is where somebody would say, well, that is what the Bible is, right? That is what the, that is what the, um, that is what the Quran is. That is what the teachings of Buddha are. That um, I can't think of the the I can't think of the Hindu text off the top of my head. Bhagavad Gita, something like that. Bhagavad Gita, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think I only remember that from a Beatles song. To be honest, <laughs> it's like I can see the letters in my mind and I can think of the sounds, but I can't I can't get the yeah. consonants right, which is frankly what happens a lot to me with with Indian words. But do you know that Hindu itself just just talking about how like politics corrupts this stuff and like, and like changes the way that we, you know, that Hindu itself was a classification created by the British government. You're kidding me. What? No. So it was a way for them to distinguish. It was a way for them to distinguish the Muslim population in the Indian subcontinent from the non-Muslim population. Because in my study of religion, what I, you know, and I, there's a couple textbooks on my shelf that kind of go over this, but it's actually like Santana Dharma. What does Santana Dharma mean? It means followers of the way. Have you ever heard that before, James? Huh. In, in your studies of religion? Yeah. No. Early Christians called themselves the followers of the way. And so, like, so Hinduism was actually this very loosely organized school of thought before British imperialism and British colonialism. It is my understanding, and I wouldn't consider myself an, an expert, but just the fact that we will use this term Hinduism to describe a religion that doesn't actually, it doesn't, I don't think it actually captures, again, from my perspective, what these people, what many of the practitioners and believers actually, uh, you know, follow. So, but it, but it was a created as a classification method, which is just like, you know, again, when we're going back to, back to sex and gender and like, is this just an access, 
you know, is this accidental distinction between a word we get from a Germanic language and a word we get from a romantic language now this huge debate, right? Um, so I guess to kind of start winding down, uh, mm-hmm. you, so you mentioned a lot of philosophers who are now dead. Who mm-hmm. are some of your influencers who, uh, just today you like follow on Twitter or listen to their podcast or read their books or whatever? Yeah. Um, so I am probably not, I don't know that I would call that none of them are necessary. Well, all right. So sorry. The reason for this, the reason for this consternation is, you know, I, I wrote a piece <laughs> like what is, who is a philosopher who can call themselves a philosopher? Um, I mean, I am, I am more, probably more influenced by people who are dead than people who are living. Um, there's something to be said for that, I think. But like people that I follow today that kind of, I think, deal with this stuff in, you know, greater or lesser extents are people like Jordan Peterson. It, you know, it, it, that, that would probably be one person I can think of off the bat. I think Thaddeus Russell does this well, even though he takes more of a historical approach to, to the exploration of ideas. And I don't know that he'd call himself a philosopher. And then, you know, frankly, I do I, this, you know, I do like Stefan Molyneux. I think he has a lot of interesting things to say. And, and I'm not even going to do the quibble thing where I say I disagree with some of what he has to say. And I think that, now... That drives me nuts. I, I think we need to denormalize that, that particular disclaimer. Mm-hmm. Just saying I don't, I don't agree with, every, anything, with everything anybody says. I mean... Hey, absolutely. You could, you, I don't have to say that about Dave Smith. Why should I have to say that about Stefan Molyneux? Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm trying, and like, I'm even like, like, that's, it's like, well, I like Stefan Molyneux. Like, and, and frankly, and I'll be, and, and I'll, I'll give a little bit of a testimonial. That man has helped me in the, in the realm of like self-knowledge and understanding. And like, cause I use philosophy to try and understand myself, right? I'm never somebody whose therapy has really worked for. Um, I've always felt that I can like run circles around the therapists that I've met. That's not a condemnation of therapy. Therapy is a condemnation of therapists that I've interacted with, right? And I've never really gone to therapy of my own free will. So, not that I was ever institutionalized for the record, uh, <laughs> but just, but just again. But I think he takes that that methodology of philosophy has to have ramifications for your personal life, and that you should live a happy life, um, and you should understand that there are people who have tried to hurt you, and that maybe they're the reasons why you're not living your best life. I will say that since he has moved off of politics after he was deplatformed, um, he's probably a lot closer to the person that everybody fell in love with. I kind of came across him in his rise of politics, and I look at him as a cautionary tale, frankly, as somebody who's getting involved in politics with the with the mind and the rhetoric of a philosopher. But you know, again, you can. I don't really care what you think about that because the people that aren't going to look at this with an open mind. I'm not that interested. They're, they were going to demonize me anyway for something that I've said in our conversation so far. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of other people that spike to mind. I mean, in general, because there's this like philosophical stuff that I do, which is more of like training your brain to look at things in a certain way. But then there's, I'm also really interested in like mindset and, you know, being a better, like trying to make yourself a better person, trying to grow your, your sense of autonomy and your sense of wealth. And for that, I, I go to Jason Stapleton. And he's been, you know, we kind of talked about that a little bit on the last show of just having somebody to push you in your career is something that is super important, whatever that career is. Like, you know, part of the reason why I'm doing this is I would love this for this to be my main source of income. I would love the idea that my words are so good that people want to pay me. And if you want to do that, you can go to binawake.com slash subscribe. I'm offering a lifetime discount for anybody who joins um, who joins my Substack before the one-year anniversary of of my of my first published date. But even if it's not, 
that's I, there's still the skills that you learn to develop your career should be are transportable to everything. And for those of us who for those of us who want to listen to podcasts and don't want to watch network news, we kind of understand the way the world is changing. And we understand, you, so you should understand as a consequence of that, you need to be in a position to make sure that you're set up so that you can support your loved ones or even just yourself so that you're not a burden on society and you're not a burden on people in your lives. Um, and so I think, so there's, I don't know, I kind of, I guess I would say in totality, I kind of take it all, but I think as I should, I've been meaning to reach out to try to find more people in this space. But then it's an input-output thing. So if I start listening to current current people who are kind of at a similar level to me, am I putting something out there that's just the same as them? And then I'm, I don't have anything unique to say. Yeah, that's what that's what Monica Perez, who is a big influencer of mine, uh, that's that's why she doesn't listen to libertarian podcasts. She wants to make sure that she's you know original and not and not uh, spouting out somebody else's thought. I, on the other hand, uh, relish the fact that <laughs> I don't really have any. Uh, original contributions, although that might change. Um, I've been toying with some ideas. Um, okay, great. So you've mentioned beenawake.com slash subscribe. Um, are there other places where you'd like people to go to find you or is that the best? If you go to beenawake.com, that's how you're going to, you can find me everywhere. You can go to follow.beenawake.com if you'd like. Follow it, uh, beenawake.com slash donate if you want to do a one-time donation. Um, you can find me on social media at the LB Muniz. That's M-U-N-I-Z for all you gringos out there. So yeah, I mean, uh, you can catch me on the most, you know, if you want to see me in a completely different vein, but still, you know, putting on a good show, you can catch my recent appearance on the Tower Gang Power Podcast, uh, which is kind of more of a raunchy, not safe for work conversation about towers on Twitter, which is, which was fun. Um, <laughs> Who hosts but, uh, that? I think I, I think I am following a couple of the people, but I didn't toad. know Anarcho Toad, you should totally try and get on with them because I think you would have some fun. Yeah, I was, I um, was in the, I was in the um, tower game for a minute. And, and not to belabor the point, but this is an interesting question of in groups and out groups, right? This like, a, like, can you take a little bit of offense? And I think yeah. that that's, and that's one of the reasons why I would, why, why I want to do a show like that is because I'm really not interested in an audience that does that can't take a little bit of offense. Because again, like I said earlier, I was bullied a lot as a kid. And my parent, my mom's answer wasn't, you know, no, cry about it. Get on my, my mom's answer was to go to the school and say, if you don't solve this problem, he will, he is going to punch them the next time that they make fun of him and you are going to suspend him and I am going to take him to get ice cream. And so like, it's so like, I, I don't really care about, I don't care for bullies. So I'm not really interested in people who want to bully me about their stupid morality. So that's why I think there's some, I think there's a utility in this space that we're in. We didn't get into it, but like, which is fine. It's like the, the larger libertarian party space where if you can't take a little bit of offense, you, you need to. And if you can't take a little bit of offense, you shouldn't be in the realm of ideas and you shouldn't be thinking that your opinion has merit. Yeah. I think we should leave it there. I really appreciate the time, <laughs> LB. Uh, oh yeah, man. And this, yeah, is I'll, this is a blast. I might try to get on that Tower Gang podcast. I'm I'm looking at their faces right now, and a few of them are familiar to me. Mm. Uh, I don't know who Drew's husband is, but <laughs> um, <laughs> that's uh, Nick Ashley. Oh, uh, individual well podcast. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, mm. I just didn't recognize him by face. Uh, yeah. It, it, yeah, cool. Well, I've heard of him for sure. I think he's been on a few different higher profile podcasts. So, all mm -hmm. right, cool. Well, uh, I appreciate it again, and let's talk again soon. Hell yeah, man. All right, thanks again to LB for joining me today and thank you as always for tuning in. 
Remember, you can find LB at beenawake.substack.com. I will make sure to link to his show in the show notes. It's a fantastic podcast and also newsletter that I think you need to subscribe to with your email address to get the full effect. Additionally, I think that in order to get the full effect of this show, you know I'm going to say it, you should subscribe with your email address at blackbird.substack.com if you haven't already. Of course, you can subscribe to just the podcast in your favorite podcast app like iTunes or Spotify. But for the full Blackbird experience, make sure that you sign up with your email address so that you also get my written content. And you will also have the opportunity to sign up for the premium feed, which will get you, obviously, premium content as that is released. So thanks again for tuning in for this episode, and I will see you on the next one. Until then, live free. (laughs) 